0: Roy Lucher here with another exciting episode of Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lucher, And my episode today is kind of a, I guess a two-part episode, I'd say. First of all, a couple days ago, uh, a friend of mine started a drive to assist in the United States with Takeyama Mania the um, medical fundraising going on for Yoshihiro Takayama. So, uh, later on in the show, we're going to hear a quick interview with uh, the creator of the Real Hero Archive, Eric Cholinski. I've known Eric for geez 30 years now, so (laughs) he will be a guest on a a future episode for sure, and a much uh, lengthier conversation, but for now, I just wanted to get him on so we could explain what's going on with the North American Drive for Takayama Mania, uh, how to donate, what's going on, what it's about, the people that are involved in it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's later in the show. Now, the next thing I'm going to bring up to you guys is I love classic Japanese wrestling. I grew up on it. I love the storylines, I love the wrestlers, but I'd also be naive to know that I'm not the only one who who loves it, or I wouldn't be doing the show because I'm sharing it with you guys, but I want to share the story of somebody who's in a similar boat to a lot of us. This man was actually tape trading at seven, eight years old. In the Pittsburgh area, I, I, listening to his story, it, it's unbelievable. So he grew up watching wrestling. He's part of a wrestling family. He has an older brother that a lot of you may know that is an announcer for the WWE. However, this man got into wrestling school, was trained, went over the world, and is currently the biggest Rudo, the heel in the CMLO promotion in Mexico. I wanted to bring him on the show today to tell his story, because not only is he a big name in Mexico right now, but he just had his first tour of All Japan, a company that he grew up idolizing back in the late 90s, early 2000s. As you may have guessed, the man that we have on the show today is none other than Sam Adonis himself. Coming straight from Mexico City, by the way. And this was really a fun one that I did. So without further ado, let's go to the interview that I conducted with Sam Adonis. Hey, wrestling fans. Roy Luscher here with another episode of Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Luscher. My episode today, I got someone who is just killing it worldwide right now. I brought him on the show. He just recently had his first tour of All Japan a couple months ago. He also got the most amazing, biggest win of his career by beating the legendary Blue Panther in a hair versus hair match. I have on the line right now, Sam Adonis. How are you doing today, Sam?
1: I am great, man. I've been looking forward to this podcast for a while. Um, (laughs) Anytime I have a chance to talk about classic Japanese pro wrestling, someone like yourself who has a pretty much a reputation for being one of the fans that everybody pretty much knows. So uh it'll be fun today on the really looking forward
0: to it. <laughs> Oh definitely. And I do want to say at some point I definitely want to come down to Mexico City with one of my old hundred percent Ruto fans and uh
1: root for you and stuff. Well whenever you have the opportunity, uh I'll be happy to accommodate and hang out with you. But, uh, you. it looks like right now, it seems like all directions are probably pointing towards me versus Negro Cassis in a hair versus hair match.
0: That's so, insane. Would you have pictured yourself doing that like 10 years ago? I mean,
1: wow. It, it, it's really, it's really, you know, kind of funny because I, I'm really into all that motivational speaking and, you know, staying positive and everything. And in a sense, you know, I, I can say that I'm not too surprised by it because, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm six, four. you know, this is always going to help in the pro wrestling game, having the size. I've always been a bit outspoken, you know, as far as being able to work with an audience or something. But, you know, anybody that you ever speak to about me will tell you back when I was 10 to 12 years old, I studied so much wrestling from all over the world that I had such a passion that, you know, it was obvious I was, I was a bit more passionate than most of the guys I grew up around in the wrestling business. So I can't say, yeah, I knew I was going to do it, but, you know, anybody, everybody that was around me now isn't exactly surprised because, you know, it's not normal for a 10-year-old kid to have an encyclopedia of knowledge about Lucha Libre from the 90s, you know, <laughs> so uh, I'm definitely in the place I want to be. I've worked my ass off, you know, I, I got here because I did put the work in and put the effort in, but at the same time, it's, uh, you know, I, I feel if you have a passion, you feel strongly about it. there's nothing that can stop you from getting it other than yourself.
0: Now, speaking of your childhood, tell us a little more about you growing up. Your father was a promoter, wasn't he? My dad was an independent promoter
1: in the USA, uh, in Pittsburgh, actually. But he was a volunteer fire chief. Um, he grew up, uh, I grew up in, like, the emergency services. My dad sold fire trucks. And in his fire department, they used to uh, buy and sell fundraisers that were pro-wrestling oriented. So... Um, they would have the indie show come to town and my dad would have, you know, the firefighters sell the tickets and the the beer, the hot dogs, all that stuff. And it got to the point where, you know, he became really good with promoters and his shows started to do a little bit better than the promoter shows were doing. Hmm. So, you know, after enough time and, you know, realizing how the game worked and my dad being a lifelong fan, you know, I mean, die hard comes to Bruno San Martino, Neil Masters, you know, anyone and everyone. We grew up, you know, reading about and talking about, we had the videos, his knowledge kind of translated him to become, you know, a a really good wrestling promoter on the independent level. And because of that, he got my brother, Corey Graves, into pro wrestling. And, you know, being being around those two, you know, naturally my obsession continued to grow. And, uh, you know, it became more or less the family business. And because of that, you know, everything evolved into where it is today.
0: What's the age difference between, between you and Corey? He's five years
1: older than me, and I have a sister that's two years older than me, and I have okay. a sister that's ten years younger than me. So, oh, wow. Well, we have a pretty big family, but, you know, the wrestling events were almost a family event. You know, my mom would sell the tickets. My sister would, you know, sell the merchandise. we would build the ring. We'd go out to eat afterwards. It, was, it really was like family business. So it was always pretty fun when it was make that work.
0: So you say you've pretty much been a wrestling fan at first sight, correct?
1: Yeah, I would definitely say that. Uh, I, I was so infatuated, everything about it. Um, my brother and my dad really, you know, were into it even before I was born. And my dad has seen literally every wrestler ever, in, you know, in person. He's seen Lou Fez, you know, Johnny Valentine, um, you Neil know, Maslow, Swift Flair. He grew up in Pittsburgh at Civic Arena, you know, seeing all the guys. That he lived in Richmond, Virginia, where you used to see the NWA back in probably 78. And uh, back then, I don't know if you've heard of the old uh, Eddie Einhorn's
0: IWA. Yeah, well, uh, Mascaris was the champ in 74, and he's never lost the title. Well, he was actually uh, – my dad, Richmond,
1: Virginia, was actually one of the TV-taping cities for them. So my dad wow. was able to see everybody back then, and, you know – I hate using the term smart mark because it gives wrestling fans a little bit too much credit, but I think my dad would have been what would have been considered a smart mark going back mm-hmm. to the 70s. You know, he studied the magazines, and his love translated to my brother. And, you know, when I was a kid, um, most kids watched Barneys or Thundercats or something like that, you know. I used to watch the Fester Hulk Hogan Volume 1 from Coliseum Video religiously. Every single day I'd watch it five or six times. You know, when we used to have, uh, I remember, we had one of the uh, Jordan Napolitano photo books, The New Pictorial History of Pro Wrestling. And all these guys that, you know, they were a bit before my time, but I'd study them, you know, I'd read about them. And, you know, I was born in 89, so my first memories of wrestling on TV would have been, you know, Razor and Flair and uh, Shawn Michaels when he turned heel, you know, 92, 93 is when I really remember it. But at the same time, you know, in 1992... I was watching videos of Saturday Night's Main Event from 85, where even you know, the wow. of the Champions won. So it, it was a bit of an obsession from first uh, opportunity I had to see it. So it, it, it was weird. I, I never said I planned it, but it's such an infatuation. And, and that's kind of, you know, what's led to some of my success.
0: You know, one odd thing about those Coliseum home videos, I think I studied those to the point where I can still remember there's a part in there where I think it's Mike Rotundo doing an airplane spin and I could close my eyes and picture I think the referee Dick Rurley gets hit hit in the head with a piece of paper and I could see that like every time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's you watch best. those videos. Way too much
1: I, I missed that opening video that the the, the, uh, the old with the the Roman gladiators and all oh, that shit. stuff. The the opening of the College in home video was the absolute best.
0: That needs to be updated, you know. If anyone from the company is listening to this, that would make a great addition to, you know, current yeah. DVDs like that, that Hidden Gems one that just came out or any future ones. Put that on there, but update it. I think, there, would, cool. I think people <laughs> yeah. would love it. Now, but personally knowing you, I know you're a student and a very passionate fan of Japanese wrestling. Do you remember how you first came about learning about all the different promotions?
1: Well, it it was funny because, uh, you know, as a kid, I was always fascinated by new wrestlers. Like, uh, I always felt like there was something else out there that I never saw. So I remember seeing, like, Liger when you come to WCW or you see the great Muda, and I'm like, who are these guys and why are they better than all of our guys? So that's kind of, you know, really my first memory of it. I knew there was something else out there, but I didn't know how to find it or see it. And after that, uh, ECW was really a big part of the Pittsburgh scene. Pittsburgh was a really, I should say Pittsburgh was a big part of the ECW scene. It was mm-hmm. one of their third or fourth kitties. So, uh, once that got big, we got really into that. We started watching it as a family, you know, and my dad took me to an ECW show. And, uh, I want to say it was probably February of 97. It was one of the first times I came to Pittsburgh at the Golden Dome. And, uh, I remember going there and I remember seeing, uh, Rob Feinstein, RF video, and he had Mm -hmm. an FMW tape on the table. And I just couldn't believe my eyes. I just could not believe that there actually was a big wrestling company that had 50,000 people with all these awesome-looking guys like Mr. Pogo and Hayabusa, Nita, and, like, what is this? How is it possible that, you know, there's something else out there that we don't get to see? So I remember buying IWA King of the Death Matches, which was my first Japanese wrestling tape. And that's uh that's really what kinda of opened my eyes. And uh, you know, I was seven years old at the time, you know, you keep keep that in mind, which is actually kinda of funny because you know, my dad was always cool enough that he didn't care that I'm watching people getting slammed in the thumbtacks. You know, he bought me the tape and I was obsessed. You know, I just really loved it. Soji Nakamaki and, and you know, Leatherface, these guys that I'd never heard of, but I just loved them. But everything came back to Ayabusa. He was literally like my, my Hulk Hogan for that period of time. You In know, wow. 97, 98, when I was a kid, I just adored Hayabusa. And this is right when we first got the internet, too. So, you know, I remember searching some videos and just, he would wait all day for a 30-second clip to download. And it, it, you just, I, I really learned a little bit from that. But as I got older, you know, my taste changed. You know, you, you almost, you, you mature a little bit. So you know, I'd watch Hayabusa, and then maybe one of my Hayabusa cops would have Hayabusa against the Great Sasuke. And for so me, it was who the hell is the Great Sasuke? Look at this guy; he's almost better than Hayabusa. So the next time, you know, I'd get a uh, Great Sasuke tape, and then all you know, more Liger. Oh, I want to see this Kojima guy. I want to see Kawada. You know, so it's it gradually grew into an obsession more of the the All Japan and New Japan. But it all stemmed from you know Hayabusa and FMW.
0: Yeah, they they were trading Hayabusa. I don't want to say trading, but they were loaning him out to all Japan uh, Mishinoku Pro. He was, so he was wrestling for a, a lot of different companies at that time. You know, having dream matches and stuff like that, and gosh. He definitely was a one-of-a-kind one talent, for sure. Well, he, was, he definitely kept them afloat. You know, if
1: he wasn't working for those outside companies keeping SMW at such a high standard, you know, he gave SMW the validity they needed, and it was pretty much proof. You know, once, once, you know, he tragically had his accident, it wasn't too long after that that they lost their investors, they lost their money, they lost everything because, you know, they didn't have that special key element that they needed to make it work.
0: Now, how did you continue at seven, eight, nine years old to increase your cape collection?
1: Uh, it was funny because um, my brother would have started training. Let's say My brother had his first match in 2000, and I used to travel to all the shows with him. And I was literally like his you know, roadie, if you will. I would have been there, you know, just by his side in the car, BSing about wrestling, having fun. And I'd always be, hey, Matt, I got this new tape. Can we watch this? You know, come over to the house for, when he was living with his girlfriend. We'll watch wrestling and this and that. But I started becoming friends with a lot of the wrestlers. And I was little Sam. You know, I was this little <laughs> shit-talking kid. That, you know, everybody it was kind of funny. They're like, how the hell does this 10-year-old kid know more about wrestling than we do? You know, they would always they always come up to me and say, Sam, what do you think of the match? And I was always, oh, that, was, that wasn't that good today, man. Oh, they shut up, kid. You don't know what you're talking about, you know, and then the next month they'd ask me again, you know because I did. I almost had a reputation for knowing my stuff, so when that was the case, I met up with a lot of the actual you know the tape traders from Pittsburgh, and we'd sit together at the shows, and I had a friend of mine, Matt Tresler, was his name, and uh he'd sell me tapes five bucks a pop, and there would just be anything I wanted you know i would see him probably twice a month. So I'd do my chores at the house, and then I'd see him, you know, every once in a while. And he would just bring me, you know, all the latest New Japan TV, the Nella TV, or, you know, Best of Barbed Wire Volume 33, or whatever it was. You know, I just kept buying it. And uh, I always say now, you know, people don't realize how lucky they are with YouTube.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Waiting. I remember waiting days, you know. I cannot wait until Saturday. I'm going to get tapes. And then I'd get home from the show at one in the morning, and I'd stay up until four or five watching every minute of every tape, you know? There, I don't know if you remember getting an old comp tape when you didn't know what match was next. Yep. And you just kept waiting, and, and it was like, oh, man, is it over? Damn it. That was such a good tape. That was half the fun of tape trading back then.
0: So <laughs> I um, remember, yeah, know. I remember getting this tape, and the guy who sent it to me said, hey, it's just a bunch of on here, it's going to be people you recognize in weird promotions, and I get it on, and it's Kawada Wrestling in Stampede as Toshiaki doing jobs, but there's like six, seven matches of him doing this, and it's it's like, wow, I didn't know he wrestled in North America, you know, so those old concepts are definitely fun.
1: That was the best. It was so good when you didn't know, or or, you know, sometimes you get the best of of Hayabusa, but then, you know, the the ones I would like would be, uh, let's say, just uh, the best of 91, you know, and they just have, you know, some, some all-Japan women, some all-Japan, some FMW. they just have everything, and, and it, you know, it take you all over the world, I, I absolutely loved it. But again, I always felt like there was something else out there that I didn't know about, and that's what kept me hungry and motivated to keep searching. Yeah.
0: Now, besides Hayabusa and Liger, who are some of your favorites to watch?
1: Um, early on Muda, uh, Onida actually adored Onita. Um, I was a big fan of all the flippy stuff back then. Um, I'm not too big of a fan of it now, but, uh, Onida was one of my guys. But once I really developed a taste for, uh, you know, all Japan and new Japan, Muda, uh, when he was, you know, Kaiki Mudo, I absolutely adored. I still do. I saw him at the gym when I was in Japan, and I about to pee in my pants. And, uh, yeah, Muda, Kabashi, and now the older I get, and the more you know, the more I learn about wrestling, the more into I am. Uh, the more I'm into the '80s All Japan and New Japan, because I feel like it's even a little bit better. Um, Jumbo Saito, um, Fujinami and Anoki. just I mean anything from that era is
0: just untouchable in my eyes. So, if you need any of that personally, you let me know. I got like every new All Japan TV from like eighty four to
1: ninety six. Well you keep me going on YouTube. Yeah. Your your <laughs> channels are the because you have the most obscure stuff all the time. I love it. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Now when you first started training to be a wrestler, what wrestler or wrestlers did you try to pattern yourself to be the most like?
1: I I can honestly say I never really tried to copy anybody. Um I did my best to just learn how to be a wrestler. And luckily, you know, I think it's almost subconsciously When you see and study that much wrestling, you know, naturally it's going to kind of come easy to you. So uh, my brother, my dad opened a wrestling school, and it was basically, you know, more or less so my brother could train me. Uh, We had a few extra students just to kind of offset costs and things. But, you know, I picked up everything pretty well and pretty easy. Um, Yeah. The wrestling side, my brother really, you know, took it hard on us. We did all the conditioning. We did the wrestling. We learned how to wrestle before we ever touched the ropes, you know, probably five or six months of wrestling before touching the ropes. So, I, I, you know, I can give my brother credit for being a hell of a trainer, a lot better than most guys have had. <laughs> and because, because it's, uh, you know, kind of come easy to me, uh, I never really focused on copying anybody. I didn't really have an identity. My first couple years were just absolute garbage because I just went out there and did what I tried to do, you know, just tried to be a guy that was a good wrestler, and I didn't have an identity, no gimmick, no anything. And it was really when I turned heel uh, for the first time that, that everything started to come together. And being not only a Japanese wrestling fan, but being such a fan of 80s wrestling, you know, and even 70s and 60s wrestling, that's when, you know, you started to see a little bit of the Jimmy Valiant come out, the superstar Billy Graham, the Ric Flair, the Terry Funk you know and the the art of entertainment as well as wrestling you know started blending together and that's when you know my character really started developing into who it is today
0: nice now you've mentioned how you're more of a fan of the older product than the newer product um explain how you personally try to make your style resemble the older product when you're in the ring
1: um my biggest gripe about professional wrestling is now it is basically only marketed to people that like professional wrestling. Um, wrestling now might be more athletic and, and you know, more well polished than it's ever been. However, your casual fans could never have been less interested because you know they're 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 selling out professional wrestling, and, and you know they're not respecting wrestling the way it needs to be. And a lot of people are too you know too gimmicky or too comedic or, you know, people don't respect wrestling anymore. They're just kind of doing what they want to do or they want to be the next internet wrestling sensation. That's what they're worried about. My goal is that every time I'm in the ring, I want people to be entertained. I want people to enjoy the fight. I want people to lose themselves in the match, you know, and I can honestly say I don't, you know, I don't compromise the integrity of pro wrestling when I wrestle. You know, I kind of stick to the basics. I don't have a finishing move. I don't have an offense. You know, I don't say, oh, I do these moves. This is my high spot. You know, I do, uh, I'm I'm a worker in the sense that, you know, I I feel the audience. I feel my opponent. And, you know, that's where my success has come from because I've been able to, you know, kind of keep a core of what professional wrestling is and what it's supposed to be instead of what it's become.
0: Now, while I realize you've seen hundreds, if not thousands of matches from, you know, back in the 80s and 90s in Japan, what are some of the best matches that come to mind when you think of that era?
1: Oh, there's just so many. I mean, uh, I I couldn't even really pick favorites, but there's so many that stick out. Some of those tags, I mean, just are unbelievable. You could you could interchange probably 12 to 15 guys from all Japan in the mid-90s. And it wouldn't matter who they're in the ring with. You know, at uh, that period of time, you know, I, it's just untouchable. When you have your Gordy Williams, Asawa Kawata Tao, Akiyama, Spivey Hansen, I mean, that is, in my opinion, probably as good of a roster as there's ever been ever. You know, so if you take all those guys, it doesn't matter who they're working, they're going to have a killer match. Um, I actually got to meet Kabashi when I was in All Japan. And uh we were talking a little bit. I spent about fifteen minutes with him, which was cool. And, uh, <laughs> I told him about the, uh Kibashi and Kikuchi against the can Ams from ninety two
0: My and favorite tag was, match of all time
1: that's it's just fantastic and I mean you're not you're not gonna find a hotter crowd anywhere in the history of the u s a either you know that 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 was one of those once in a lifetime matches. The arena was hotter than it needed to be and that was fantastic. Um,
0: it was at like Kikuchi's loved, hometown too.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, he was super over. Um, I like Muda. Anything from Muda in 2001 was awesome. Um, Muda, Muda and Muda and Tenor was fantastic. Um, I actually like. I don't know if you remember Kawada and uh, Kojima.
0: Yeah, Satoshi Kojima. New yeah. Japan. Yeah.
1: New Japan when they did Budokan that was really good. Um, another one I really like. It doesn't really get too much play. Is uh, Akiyama and Nagata against Hase and Muda in the Tokyo dome. Oh and I almost forgot my absolute favorite match of all time is Kawa, or is uh Muda and Takana from the Tokyo Dome, October ninety five.
0: I just came up on um thanks to my new sponsor, Wrestletopia, I just came up on New Japan T V nineteen ninety five complete and it's got that UWFI stuff in there. So I'm going to be uploading that pretty soon.
1: That's the best the best story in the history of wrestling.
0: Yeah, if they had only let UWFI, like, get more victories in that feud, it would have lasted a little bit longer. Well, the only thing is, it's funny because, again, it's I'm pretty crucial on, you know, pro wrestling fans.
1: That match isn't ever really put over as being one of the memorable, you know, as far as Kawada Masawas or, you know, um, Masawa Kabashi's. No one ever talks about Takata and Muda, but that was the, the biggest Tokyo Dome crowd they've ever had. As far as history goes, you know, that match probably means more to Japanese fans than most of the Japanese matches that are important to American fans. Yeah. So it's really funny on this, kind of a double standard there, but it's not pretty, but the story they tell is the best wrestling match I've ever seen.
0: Now, I'm going to name a wrestler. Tell, tell me your first thoughts when I name the wrestler off.
1: Uh Mr. Hur right. uh, fantastic. Uh but I'll be I'll be uh, a bit a bit of a heel here and I'd say um he's not as good as everybody. And, no, that's not what I'm trying to say here. I don't want to bury myself because he's fantastic. I feel like he gets too much credit because of the the, the legacy that he's Misawa. I feel like you know Kabashi is is just as big and there's guys that have had just as good a match as Masawa. But because that brand of being the ace was on him for so long, the the, the uh, reputation's a bit stronger than, you know, it, it's almost not fair to the other guys, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Jumbo Shruta.
1: Fantastic. Uh, he had two careers. You know, he was in the 80s as a babyface, as good as it gets. And as the 90s, as the mean old man was even better. So I'd love him to death.
0: Kenta Kobashi
1: my favorite ever. Uh, just the best. He he was almost you know, the people's champion. Like I said, you had uh Misawa pushed as the ace, but again, if you if you just watch some of those old shows, you know, people people loved the fact that he couldn't beat Misawa. He was, you know, such a big part of the uh big part of the system and he, he was almost like the, the unsung hero. He was the one people wanted to win even though Misawa had that ace brand behind him.
0: Uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams.
1: Uh, unreal, just, I mean, a different level. Like I said to you earlier, um, you can't say pro wrestling has evolved in any way, you know, when we had guys like Dr. Death or Terry Gordy in the 90s, and we don't have them today. You know, evolution involves bigger, faster, stronger, and, you know, there wasn't many much bigger, faster, or stronger than a guy like Dr. Death. Uh,
0: speaking of, of Williams, Terry Gordy.
1: Uh, unbelievable, the best big man in history, so intense, just everything about him, you know, uh, I just watched the other day, uh, Gordy uh, and Doc against Wyndham and Dustin Rhodes from Saturday night, when they won the tag bouts and just the pace they kept, you know, being these guys, these, these rough old men, not old men, but rough older guys, you know, athletes that just had history, that could absolutely kill somebody, you know, and then go after out go out after the show and have, you know, thirty beers and do it again tomorrow. You know, that's what's missing from wrestling. Too many guys are worried about playing video games and you know getting getting over on Twitter instead of being a man, you know, and worrying about selling tickets.
0: Toshiaki Kawada.
1: Um, I was never the biggest Kawada fan. Uh he's just he's awesome. Uh I, I can watch his match and enjoy every one of them. Um yeah, again uh, I hate to say, like like I said about Misawa, I hate to sound, you know, I don't want to say the word overrated because they're not. They're two of the best in the history of wrestling. But I think, you know, the company as a whole is responsible for these guys being as good as they are. And it's almost not fair to put, you know, Kabashi Masawa and Kawada on a level above the rest of the guys when they wouldn't be at that level
0: without the rest of the guys. Danny Crawford.
1: Um, good with what he does. Hey, I don't think he. I probably wouldn't let him list him in my top twenty favorite guys in. But you know, I could enjoy his matches any day of the week.
0: Doug Furnace.
1: best dropkick in the history of wrestling.
0: June Akiyama,
1: a boss. Um, I've been able to wrestle Akiyama-san a few times now, and uh, he was he was my boss when I worked for him in all Japan. It's still kind of surreal for me every time I see him because, you know, I I wrestled him in Arena Mexico in the main event for the first time, and it was like, oh my God, I'm wrestling Akiyama in Arena Mexico. So uh, it's just it's weird, and I have nothing but respect for him. I'd love to work with him more. Um, I'd love to work on a bit of a higher capacity in all Japan, you know, if I get to go back. So uh, yeah, too much respect for him.
0: Hashimoto.
1: Um, awesome. Uh, I, he's, he's great. You know, I, I appreciate the story time, I appreciate a lot of his matches. Um, I would always pick Mudo over him every day, but, uh, I, I think Hashimoto was a bit more of a mainstream draw back in that day. Uh, he sold a bit more tickets and everything. So I have nothing but respect for all these guys.
0: Uh, speaking of Mudo, Mudo is next.
1: Muda is, again, Muto and Kabashi are my two favorite of all time. Um, they had that whole babyface deal down to a T. Um, I think Muto's super underrated as Kaiji Muto. I think you know, and not only in the you know the, the past 15 years when he's been bald, but even back in the you know 90s, as far as a pure, clean-cut babyface pro wrestler goes, you know, they, he's he's as good as they get. You know, you could put him on the same level as a Steamboat or or uh, Brad Armstrong. You know, untouchable as far as being in the ring.
0: Hayabusa,
1: my favorite ever at that point in time. However, um, again, it's not ever these guys' fault. It's the fault that, uh, you know, most people lack creativity. Hayabusa was a big problem for, you know, I think making wrestling what it's become today. Um, It worked at the time, and it was great and innovative at the time. But, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And when you get a guy like Hayabusa, you know, years after that, People copied, and people wanted to be like that. And they do more and more flips, and more and more high spots, and that's what's taken us to the point today where people have, you know, compromised integrity of pro wrestling for the sake of, you know, doing the acrobats that they like seeing Hayabusa do.
0: Scott Norton, uh,
1: another one that's in the line of, you know, how has wrestling evolved? If we don't have another Scott Norton, you know, this guy is an absolute machine, one of the strongest men on the planet. Used to, you know, sell out. New Japan shows with Hashimoto or Joshu, you know, how New Japan does not have guys like him anymore. You know, to me, that's a reason why, you know, yes, business is good and they're doing well, but it's not the same as it was in 91 and 92 because they don't have that same, you know, Godzilla monster, if you will.
0: Yeah. Hiroshi Hase.
1: Unbelievable. Super, Super. underrated. Probably, in my opinion, the most underrated of all Japanese wrestlers. Um, Hase's untouchable amateur background just could do it all, but, uh, he never really got put in that position. I think you're always going to mention, you know, Masala, Kawashi, Kawada, Mura, uh, Shono, and Hashimoto. Everybody would mention those guys before Hase, whereas a lot of times Hase was more consistent than all of them.
0: Now, I just got to ask, was Corey also a follower and as passionate as Japanese wrestling as you are?
1: Not as much so, but he, he would definitely be into it. Um, I remember when he moved out of the house, you know, I, I'd go stay with him for maybe a weekend, a month. And uh, I would end up getting new wrestling tapes. And I was basically his liaison for uh, Japanese wrestling. You know, I'd say, Matt, you got to watch this match. You know, you got to see this, you got to see that. Um, he was a big, 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 great Muda fan, um, and that even stems back to his days, you know, being a fan of the NWA. You know, he remembered Muda because it was almost sentimental. You know, he was one of his favorites as a kid, whereas I remembered Muda almost, you know, I taught myself about Muda. So you know, I, I, I wanted to learn and see more of him, and it wasn't that he was my favorite because it was sentimental, and I remember him. It was because, you know, I studied so much, this guy actually, you know, rose above a lot of the rest.
0: Now, were you also a fan of the women as well, like All Japan Women, LLPW, JWP?
1: Um, I ended up learning about that a little bit later on. Um, that came, um you know, I was probably 15 or 16 when I started getting into that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with George Mayfield. Very the, uh,
0: much. He did Tokyo Dome. Uh, Every year he would go to Tokyo Dome and he would take like five or six people with him. Yeah, I remember the name very a, well.
1: He used to come to Pittsburgh and sell tapes and he became a great friend of mine. And he, you know, we used to email back and forth and he would always, you know, say, Sammy, I got this for you, you got to do this. And he actually started saying, you know, Sammy, you've seen everything. You got to check out these women. you got to check out these women. And I remember getting into All Japan Women and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Momo Nakanishi or Meikawa and uh, Koyakoko Inale all these girls, and they were just on a different level, and, you know, unbelievable wrestling, unbelievable guts, and, 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 you know, working their asses off, and I just, I hold women's pro wrestling to that standard to this day, and that's almost why I can't really get involved in women's wrestling, because, you know, they're proof that, that women's wrestling has its own art, its own style, and can be better than men's wrestling, but, you know, too often, women try to be like the men, you know, and they just watch wrestling and copy this and copy that. So that's kind of the reason why I'm a bit sour on pro wrestling, women's wrestling today, is because, you know, nobody can touch Bull McConnell or Oz in my eyes.
0: Makes Makes sense. Now, if you had a time machine off the top, three Japanese wrestlers that you would have loved to get into the ring with,
1: I, I would definitely say Kibashi would be one. Muda would be another one. And I'd probably say Inoki, just because some of those Inoki main events in, in the 80s were just so red hot. You know, that's that. it's such a huge part of, of Japanese wrestling. Um, I mean, Bata had the same kind of reputation, but Bada wasn't the in-ring performer that Inoki was. Yeah. So uh, I probably I probably would really, you know, really enjoy being in, in, you know, Sumo Hall in eighty four, you know, on top with an okie. That would be kinda
0: cool for me. <laughs> uh, now, did your training, did the indie circuit, went to FCW. Um, uh, where did you get to know uh Lord Stephen William Regal pretty good from F C W. Any thoughts on him as a wrestler and as a person?
1: Unbelievable wrestler. Unbelievable person. Um, just a, a fountain of knowledge the guy has just you know, done it all and seen it all and you know I'm really really lucky that I can call him a friend, I, I'd like to think he'd tell you the same thing but uh, I don't know where that you know, stands right now but um, it happened he actually came into town one day to do commentary for FCW and somebody forgot to pick him up at the airport so Tom Pritchard called me and he said hey can you go get a Regal so I hurried up, got to the airport and picked him up and this was the first time that wrestling, you know, being such a ridiculous encyclopedia and wrestling nerd has actually helped me you know, in the business because I picked him up, and immediately I didn't want to ask him, you know, your average FCW meathead question. It wasn't, hey, how do I get on the road? How do I make money? You know, it was, hey, tell me about All-Star Wrestling and Brian Dixon. Tell me about working for Otto Vance in 92. You know, I, I kind of threw uh, some of my knowledge at him because, you know, the inner fan wanted to hear about it. And because of that, it was almost, what the hell, is, well, why does this 21 year old know all this crap about wrestling? <laughs> you know, so we got to the, we, we built a really good rapport, and he actually requested that, you know, anytime he comes down, he wants me to pick him up. So that's what we were, I'd pick him up, and we would go get lunch and just BS and talk about wrestling, talk about the business and everything. And, uh, when I ended up getting released, he was ultimately responsible for hooking me up with Brian Dixon in the United Kingdom, you know, and uh, getting me work there. So um, uh, I would definitely say I, I give credit to him to him. Um, I'm not exactly a William Regal-style of wrestler. I would love to be. I would love to, to, you know, take it down to the mat and be like that. However, you know, a lot of times when I get hired to do my job, that's not exactly the job they want Sam Adonis to do. Yeah. So uh, it's not that I can't, it's not that I don't want to learn. I wish to God that's what people hired me to do. But, you know, people like a little bit more of the bump and key and 80s style heel, you know, Austin Idol, as opposed to me, you know, stretching someone on the mat.
0: You know, Regal had this match against Hashimoto, I think it was 95, may have been 94, for the IWGP title. And I just remember the announcer, you just putting him over to the point, they're saying, you know, he is you know, the next Billy Robinson, and the moves and stuff he was doing with Hashimoto was just insane. And I saw Regal two months ago in Sacramento, and, as you know, walking, he was leaving the building, and I said, hey, your master Hashimoto was, like, you know, ungodly great and stuff like that. I mean, this, Regal's, like, in his prime was just doing a whole different level. Him and Hossett hey. are probably the two best wrestlers I can think of. I mean, people say – Best wrestler's never to be world champion and throw the Pipers and the and the Jakes out there. I'm going with Hasey and Regal as the two guys that yeah, develop yeah, yeah. this crap. I'll
1: give you that. I, uh, I actually He came down here to Mexico to scout some talent a few months ago. So I ended up watching a CML event with him. And he told me that when he used to go to uh, New Japan, they always wanted him to train the young boys because they, they wanted him to teach that British style because they respected him so much. So he's, wow. just, he's a completely different level of... I mean, I remember watching... It It almost bumped me out. I watched Benoit against Regal from New Japan. I want to say it was 96, right before Benoit went to WCW full-time. And these guys just, you know, held a pace and an intensity that's just lost today. And I remember thinking, you know, these guys were testing each other because both of them had, a, you know, years' worth of wrestling knowledge. And everything they were doing in that ring came from their bank of experience. Whereas now, professional wrestling somebody would see that match and instead of learning, you know, how to keep it in a repertoire, they just copy. And when you see somebody copying a match, you can tell it's, it's not genuine, it's not real. You know, that's what's lost. We have, we have no no more wrestling that's been seasoned. These guys don't have that, you know, wealth of experience and wealth of, of wrestling, you know, in, in, a, in a bank, you know, that they, they can hold it in them and then wait till the time is right. Now it's more or less just copy and, and paste, you know.
0: Yeah. Now what would you what made you do the switch in two thousand eleven from wrestling as Sam Elias to uh your current name, Sam Adonis? Brian Dixon. Um
1: Brian Dixon is one of the most famous wrestling promoters in the world. Um everybody that's ever met him has a Brian Dixon impression. Uh he's got a very funny accent, but uh he basically still, to this day, runs his wrestling events like it was 1983. You know, doesn't worry about an entrance way, doesn't film it, doesn't. Work. Wrestling comes to town, he puts on a five match show, and he takes it away. So um, I showed up, I wrestled my match. So what's your name? I said Sam Elias. He goes Ah, my horse better Samadosh. And from then on, he just stuck. And uh, I worked for him for five years, off and on. I ended up becoming the British heavyweight champion, which is the same belt that, you know, Robbie Brooks said I would have had and Regal and Dave Taylor. Not Regal, I'm sorry, Finley. Finley and Dave Taylor. So, uh, you know, being an all-stars heavyweight champion, and in my eyes at least, seems pretty important. But, um uh, yeah, I definitely learned so much from being there. And, you know, the fact that I polished myself there, Working with that many shows, you know, without being seen on the internet or without having the internet name. That's ultimately what got me ready for when I came to see MLL. You know, I was put in such a high profile position at the beginning.
0: Now, what did you pick up the most from working the holiday camps in the UK?
1: Um, little things, as far as timing and, and punches and, you know, the things that make you a, a really good performer. And, a lot of times we would, have, we would wrestle the same guys, you know, um, let's say four or five nights a week. So, you know, you, you get comfortable with, with the guys you're working with. You end up being, it was almost like having, you know, a, a, a loop, a territory loop. You know, if you're working, you know, how many times did, did Savage work Steamboat before Mania? You know, and these guys, you get that confidence, you get that, that uh, consistency, then everything else kind of becomes easy as well. So uh, I I really looked at it as, you know, the most valuable asset I've ever had because, you know, now, like I said, most wrestlers don't have that seasoning. If you look back in history, you know, most guys that ever became stars had 10 to 15 years of experience before they made their money, you know, and they're working full-time and developing that person and that character that they're going to become. Now, most wrestlers come out of a wrestling school and they're so hell-bent on getting over on the Internet that they work these wrestling shows with such high pressure and, you know, they never really hone their craft. They're just going out there and, you know, going A, B, C, and D, doing high spots, but they never, you know, develop as a performer and they can't really stay diverse. That's why, you know, I've been able to get these positions that I've had and, you know, I, I can do a lot. You know, I like to think I'd be what would be considered a good hand because I, I've, you know, worked on all the principles instead of just, you know, working on my athleticism and learning how to do moonsaults.
0: Now, to anyone listening who has a chance to work there, what would you say are the best things about wrestling in the UK? Um,
1: well, it's, it's a completely different system now because a lot of people look at the UK as, you know, progress or revolution pro. And these guys are great at what they do. But what, what a lot of guys don't realize is, is the Marty Skrulls and the Mark Haskins and, you know, these, these guys that are good at these styles are only good because they add so much experience at these holiday camps. You know, at the wrestling, it's the consistency. It's, you know, practice makes perfect. The more matches you can have, the better you're going to get. And that's just what, you know, these holiday camps bring. Anytime that anybody were to ever say, oh, hey, holiday camp wrestling isn't the same as working as progress, you know, it's almost an insult because, you know, that consistency is what made these guys as good as they are. So, you know, to any young wrestler that ever wants to listen, all I can tell you, you know, is it's to work and, you know, get better, work with guys better than you, you know, listen and learn. Instead of doing what you want to do, you know, switch it up and do what other people want you to do.
0: Who are some of your favorite opponents to work with while over,
1: over in the U.K.? James Mason, uh, unbelievable wrestler. Without question, the most underrated wrestler on the planet today. Uh, he's wrestled for Michener Pro. He's been wrestling. He's basically the last of the uh, World of Sport guys. He started wrestling at the age of 14, I think, in 1992. And he's just, you know, he's been in there with everybody, wrestling with Johnny and Rollerball Rocco, you know, um, Rob Brookside. He was the last true understudy of the World of Sport. So to this day, he's unbelievable. Um, I was able to wrestle with Danny Collins. I was able to wrestle with Johnny Bur- Robbie Brookside. Um, Frankie Sloan's another one. that was great to wrestle with. Um, I actually wrestled with Dash Wilder a lot when I was there. So wow. I went to WWE. Uh, hmm. Unbelievable wrestler he was. There's a guy in North Carolina named John Schuyler I wrestled with, which is really good. Um, uh, the cool thing about All-Star is it, it was there was nowhere else on earth that wrestled that much. So the summers were like a revolving door. We always had guys coming and going. Um, I wrestled with her, uh, that, uh What's his name? Takahashi from New Japan. He was with us. He lived with me for about six months. Um,
0: Yujiro Takahashi, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. He lived with us in the same house. You know, we chained together. Uh, another one is Fabian Eichner, who's in NXT now. He's going to be a huge star. I'm convinced he's. He's the closest thing to a modern-day Chris Ben Wise you're going to find anywhere on the planet. Nice. He's a, student of, uh, he's a student of Steve Wright and Alex Wright, so he's got every principle you need, and he's just fantastic. He can't say enough good about him.
0: Um, Bradley Craig, who is probably known as the biggest historian over in the U.K., is a close friend of mine, and he told me to throw this question in there. Ask him how he adapted to the ring style in the U.K., what he thinks of the U.K. workers that he faced, and which talent he thinks will be the next breakout star from there.
1: Um, I I was always able to adapt and Again, it, it, it all becomes, you know, it is from studying so much and being so involved in, you know, wrestling from all eras. But I was always able to, you know, learn their style. And All-Star, you know, we had a guy named Tony Spitfire who was so hell-bent on keeping British wrestling as good as it, as it is, you know, as well as... Um, Mikey with flash Rampage Brown. So we would, uh, dean hallmark's another one. These guys, we would, we would go out there and do British wrestling style, but I would have to, of course, you know, take it over the top and make it big timey American wrestling. You know, that's kind of what my job was. But I never had a problem with Captain. Um, the rings were a little bit smaller, you know, but that in my eyes, that just makes you better, you know. That's just another little obstacle I'd have to overcome in order to adapt and make myself a better performer. But um, I can't say who's going to be the next breakout star because, you know, the guys that were good then, you know, are still good now. But my idea of a breakout star is always going to be different than, you know, a lot of people's ideas because, you know, I don't stay in touch with internet wrestling. You know, yeah. you can talk to me, if somebody's working for PWG. You know, that might not exactly be my idea of a breakout star, you know, whenever I don't have that internet reputation, you know, and I'm selling thousands of tickets in Mexico City. You know, if you ask a PWG fan, who's a bigger star, Sam Adonis or or Chuck Taylor, they're probably going to tell you every day Chuck Taylor. But if you come to Mexico and ask any Mexican fan who's a bigger star, you know, Sam Adonis or Chuck Taylor, they're probably going to say Sam Adonis every day. So I can't really. My idea of what a breakout star is is probably completely different. To, you know, the man who's asking that question.
0: Anything to say about your match you had in TNA under the name Bill Callis, and who came up with that name? I don't think I was called
1: Bill Callis. I think that's an error. An error on uh, Wikipedia. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure my name is Sam Elias. I don't remember. I don't really. Uh, it, honestly, that happened so ra- uh, randomly. Um is a buddy of mine, um, and he called me on a Sunday and said, "Hey, uh, we need a guy at TNA today. Are you interested?" And I said, "Yeah, why not? You know, it's a payday." I was leaving for Mexico three days later. I had no intention on you know signing anything, or to me, it wasn't even a tryout. You know, I, I was able to wrestle with uh, Pepper Parks. Or Braxton Center is a really good friend of mine. To me, it was like, yeah, shit, I'm off Sunday. Let's go work for TNA, have fun with it, enjoy it. You know, I said I did it. But I think that's probably what made it so enjoyable was because I didn't have to play the game. I didn't go there trying to get a job. I didn't go there trying to suck up. So it was fun. It was what it was. But, you know, I, I haven't even considered it since it happened. <laughs>
0: um, one cool thing about this show was two episodes back I had Kea on. And someone brought it to my attention because he went into detail about him growing up in Hawaii and meeting Baba and stuff like that. I guess my show is now used as the source for Kea's Wikipedia as like the start of his career and stuff like that. So hopefully <laughs> somebody that knows how to edit Wikipedia and source this show can take that stupid Bill Callis name out and put it that you were actually Sam Elias. There, so. <laughs> hopefully this show it, it will doesn't
1: bother. It. <laughs> the, the thing is, it doesn't bother me. You know, I, I get enough people now. You know, asking me these questions, and they do. You know, if, if somebody's interested enough in me, that they want to, you know, find out the truth, it doesn't matter what the Wikipedia page says because you know I can do an interview and tell you the truth anyway. So I don't yeah. lose any sleep over it.
0: <laughs> How did you end up working for Consejo Mundial de Lucha Libre of all places? Yeah,
1: it's I, I still ask myself that sometimes. <laughs> um, Angelico from This Underground has always been a pretty good friend of mine. Who so is he's that? Another one that wrestled Angelico from yeah, Beach oh, Beach Angelico. Okay, got it. Yeah, he, he's another one that was in uh, All Star with us, and we just got along great. And he always kept saying, hey, "Dude, you need to come to Mexico. Come to Mexico. Come to Mexico. You'll be an absolute star." So he just. Put that in my head forever and told me that he would get me in AAA no problem. He said it would just work out perfectly. I ended up on a show in Florida with uh, Dr. Wagner Jr. about two years ago, and he told me the exact same thing. He said, get to Mexico, man. I'm going to make you a star. It's going to work out. So I went back to England to work for about a year and a half and just kept working. I came home to see my family, and I, I don't know exactly why, but I got invited down to see Angelico. I had no, I wasn't booked, wasn't wrestling, wasn't going to do anything. I was like, screw it, I'm going to Mexico for a month, hang out, maybe talk to the guys and you know, see what can happen. I was more worried about just hanging out with Angelica and maybe training to stay in shape because I was supposed to go back to England to work. So uh, I came down here and they were going to set up my meeting with Triple And before that happened, I ended up getting a chance to train at Arena Mexico. And that's just something, you know, as a wrestler, I think, you know, you just foolish to pass up. So I got uh, invited to train with Ultimo Guerrero in his uh, his professional class at Arena Mexico. And uh, I just made waves on the first day. Um, I, I think it's been so long since they've seen a big American in that position. That they kind of, you know, didn't know how to handle it. They were just, whoa, you know, and this experience from All-Star for so long, you know, kind of set me apart from the rest. It wasn't just an American coming to train at Arena Mexico. It was, you know, holy shit, who's this guy? So uh, that was right around the time they were playing the pay-per-view, which was the Grand Prix of Mexico against the rest of the world. And all the stars lined. Um, they had calling me to the office and basically telling me they wanted me to work full-time for them and nobody else. And it just happened so quickly. And I always look at, you know, my situation in Mexico is more or less the, a segue for, you know, what's down the line. You know, as, as happy as I am here, it's not my finish line. Yeah. And so that, that being said, I've always kind of put, put a CMLL a bit of a higher pedestal than AAA because it is classic, traditional Lucha Libre and I have to learn their style as opposed to doing my style in Mexico. So, um, Everything's going in line. I take you to the main event at Arena Mexico, and, you know, a year and a half later, I, I can sit here and tell you, you know, I'm not feeling bad about it. I'm the number one heel in Mexico here today.
0: <clears throat> now, one thing I always love about CMLO over AAA was at one point, and I don't know what year it happened, but at some point they went from doing uh, las Los tres caídas to una caída. You know, from two to three falls out to one fall. So I completely see where you're coming from about the old school style of CMLL because for the most part, they still do two out of three fall matches. I mean, do you prefer the old school Lucha style of working two out of three falls to the single fall style?
1: I definitely do. I like to learn. I just, like I said, I want to be the best wrestler on the planet. You know, there's nobody out there now. There's no real journeyman wrestlers like there used to be you know, and, and sure, you can say plenty of these guys, you know, have wrestled all over the world. Let's look at, a, a, for instance, uh, you know, uh, El Generico. El Generico has wrestled in every country on the planet. But, you know, uh, this guy still never worked full time for this company or that company. You know, he, he more or less a, a, an independent star that happened to wrestle worldwide. He learned England. I've got it down, you know, I, I've learned Mexico now. I've been able to go to Japan now. I want to be, you know, at the end of the day, I want to be this era's, you know, Chris Benoit or Chris Jericho, but, you know, uh, a little bit different style, of course, because that's not exactly the rest of that I do.
0: Good thing you bring that up. I was going to say, did, did you find the transition tough? Uh, I believe it's called left to right, like, you know, the learning, because Japan and United States – you lock up, I believe, on the left side. and then, But in Mexico, you lock up on the right side, or is it backwards?
1: There's so many differences. Um, there's just so many things in every given match that are awkward and weird. And it's weird because, you know, I wrestled for 10 years all over the world. I had a WWE contract. I worked for All-Star, wrestled Germany, England, France, and Japan, this and that. And I find myself being a bit of a, a you know, back in the basins, almost a greenhorn here in Mexico. You know, I'm still learning day-to-day, but I love it. You know, uh, I'm getting to the point now where I I really have the style down. You know, I I can base on some of these things, you know, better than a lot of the guys that are here now. And and now that that the wrestlers are are giving me the appreciation, I'm getting respected as being, you know, one of the – before when I first got here, it was almost like a, you know, why is this guy getting pushed? Why is he getting all this accolades? Whereas now it's to the point where I'm kind of getting a bit, uh, I'm getting respected as being somebody that's able to live up to the position that I'm in. So I I learn every day, but, you know, now it's starting to to fall into place, and now I'm very confident with the position I have in Seattle.
0: What made you decide to switch from the ladies' man gimmick to do a more pro-American gimmick in Mexico, and what was the inspiration behind it?
1: Well, the thing is, it's
0: it's
1: if you watch it, I've never really stopped the whole ladies' man gimmick. You know, uh, people use that a lot. They say it's a Trump gimmick, and realistically, you know, uh, if, you, if that's what people want to call it, outlet, I'm fine to sad because you know, it's definitely taken me to a whole level using the flag. But you know, I just look at it as I'm such such a I'm a Terry Funk heel or an Austin Idol heel or or a Bill Dundee. I'm such a prick that I'm going to find whatever makes you sensitive. And I'm going to shove it in your face. So if, if all of a sudden, you know, pizza is outlawed tomorrow in Mexico, I'm going to come out to the ring with a pizza. You know, that's who Sam Adonis is. I'm a big, fumbling idiot, you know, that thinks I'm the coolest ladies man on earth. And I'm such a dick, I'm going to throw a Donald Trump flag in your face. <laughs> you know, um, that was just, you know, pro wrestling 101 in my eyes. And I, you know, made the best of it. But, you know, now kind of people think it, it's a USA gimmick. And it's not. It's it's just, you know, being a heel. But, you know, they, it all came from that Grand Prix. I put Donald Trump on my tights. And, you know, when that worked out, um, I just said, screw it, I'll get a flag with it, because I always came out with a flag in the United Kingdom. And it just, you know, it took on a life of its own. And I think, you know, realistically, I probably had more mainstream press this last year than, you know, most WWE guys ever get.
0: So yeah.
1: I'm not exactly, I'm not going to turn against it.
0: One thing about social media is you see these guys chop it up after their matches or the ones that are heels are thanking the fans or, or being nice on Internet. We don't see that with you. You continue it on the Internet, and that's one thing that separates your character from a lot of people out there. I just wanted to throw that out there.
1: Well, it's, it's my respect for wrestling. You know, I've always I've – always, uh, respected pro wrestling more than I respected myself and you know I'm 6'4", 250 pounds and I, my brother is a, the host of Monday Night Raw. I could easily become the hottest thing on the Indies if I wanted to be by you know working that to I, I'm six foot four and I can do a shooting star press in a 450. I guarantee everybody would say oh my god did you see Corey Graves little brother? Oh he's awesome he should go to PWG in New Japan. I guarantee I could, but I respect wrestling more than I respect myself. More than I need to sell out myself, if that makes sense.
0: So, like everyone else is already doing the move. Why do you, what do you, what do you prove by you doing the shooting star press? So yeah, exactly. And, and
1: that's my point. You know, staying true to wrestling, being a real heel that's being hated. You know, I'm selling tickets. I can honestly say. You know, aside from maybe Kenny Omega. Uh, I can't think of too many, you know, wrestlers from North America that can honestly say they've, you know, sold 10,000 tickets. You know, there's not many of them outside of the WWE. Sure, the WWE, you know, they don't count. These guys are superstars. They're not, you know, they, I'll give them all the credit they deserve because it's the WWE. But how many independent pro wrestlers can you say, you know, they've sold 10,000 tickets? It just doesn't happen very often. So, you know, whether I I don't want to play that whole independent game and be, you know, oh, thanks, guys, thanks for the hard work, thanks for the, the, the cool words and this and that, I'd rather be a prick that everyone hates because it's going to make me more money and sell more
0: tickets, and in the end it will pay off. Yeah. Take us to the feud with Blue Panther. First of all, how was it to work with El Maestro, and especially what was it the feeling like after defeating him for his hair?
1: Um. I can honestly say Blue Panther is the best wrestler I've ever been in the ring with. And it was weird because the first time I wrestled him, I realized it. And it was just uh, just the way he moves and his knowledge and his experience and his confidence in the ring, in the match, knowing how to just completely turn an audience upside down at 56 years old. I realized then and there that it was just magic. And, uh, a little bit from there, you know, we started having such great chemistry, and we're being put together. And I think realistically, uh, my bosses here—they never outright said it—but I think you know they want me to work with someone with a, li- a little bit more experience because they see my future. You know, they want me to learn as best I can. You know, it, it's you always want to pair a young wrestler with some of the better guys so they can learn and, and you know get the experience. So you know, transitioning from Blue Panther to now Negro passes. I look at it as a bit of an, uh, an investment, CMLO investing in me, because they see something, you know, that I could potentially bring to them. So, working with him, you know, it just made me so much better, and, and i learned so much from him. And uh, when I knew it was going towards the hair match, it was almost, you know, surreal. I just could not believe that, you know, this is where where my wrestling career is taking me. It sets a short time, in that, for that matter. You know, it, it almost a year's time I was able to have a you know one on one main event arena Mexico hair match. <clears throat> so
0: And not only that, that, win. that
1: <laughs> Well well that, that in itself was big enough and, and you know the pressure was on me. That night all I could think about was making sure there was enough tickets sold. I just kept pacing because wrestling fans in Mexico always show up about the second or third match. It's yep. never full at the beginning. So I'm sitting there, you know, I'm, I'm all ready to go at, at about 7 o'clock. and so I'm just pacing because this was my big night. This is my big opportunity. You know, they, somebody has given me the ball and it's my chance to run with it. And, you know, I just kept worrying and worrying. And the next thing you know, I looked out the curtain and it was absolutely packed. Um, they, they shut down about 6,000 seats for this event. They were behind these, barriers, these banners because they were advertising for the pay per view. But aside from those 6,000 seats, it was pretty much sold out. So that really kicked in the adrenaline, you know, knowing that, that basically me and, you know, Blitz-Adler put 10,000 asses in seats got me to a whole new level, and I was ready to rock and roll. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the match, but oh, it not, <laughs> it does not do it any justice what that building actually sounded like because – Everybody that has anything to do with CMLL has said to me they have never seen such a biased hair versus hair match in their years with the company. There was nobody in the building that wanted me to win. Nobody thought it was possible for me to win. So when I actually won, it was – I don't I, I can't say it's white heat because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put myself over that bad, but it was silent. It wasn't, it wasn't booze. I mean – there's a scene right after I get three characters. They they zoom in on somebody's face, and you can see the disappointment. It's almost like people, you know, you, you 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 go to see Rocky six and Rocky dies in the end. You know, it's just like that wasn't part of the plan. You know. So
0: uh, I'm gonna throw this out there. Honest to God, the reaction to me was similar to uh, Lesnar ending Taker's streak. Just that dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> and that's.
1: And that's, I mean, I, I, I it's just same things, I guess. But that was, I mean, I, I guess you could probably put it that way because it was such disbelief from everybody. And then from then on, it started, you know, they started throwing the beers. And it was just like, oh, you know, get out of here. That wasn't, oh, screw this, screw this. And it was, you know, it wasn't, uh, okay, cool, that was fun. Let's go home and get a beer. It was, you know, screw that guy, you know. And, and immediately from then on, that moment on, my career has just skyrocketed down here. That was the difference from making me, you know, a, a, an American wrestling in CMLL to making me a full-blown superstar here in Mexico.
0: Now, no matter who you're working with, you're working with the El Mejor de, de la Mejor in Lucha, from Ultimo Dragón to Negro Casas, L.A. Park, and so many other big names. Who are some of the names in Lucha that you're hoping to wrestle or feud with down the road that, that you haven't been in the ring with yet?
1: Um, I've been lucky because everybody I've really wanted to work with, I've been able to work with. Um, CMLL has, you know, a different level of wrestlers. Uh, I don't really have the desire to work with too many of the, the, the high spot guys, you know, the flippy guys, because that's not my style. But um, I've worked with, I've worked with everybody. But I want to work more with uh, Ultimo Guerrero and Atlantis, I think, um, just because they are, you know, the, the top two in our company. You know, Negro Cast is right there. Blue Panther is right there. There's plenty of big stars. But I think as far as, you know, like I said, you, know, I'm trying to get as much out of Mexican wrestling as I can. So I would like to have a program with either of those two and continue to, you know, wrestle and learn. And, you know, hopefully sell tickets and make money. But those are the guys I respect the most and would really like to learn their style because, you know, uh, just just being in there with them and feeling it is just, you know, what this is all about. That's what makes these wrestlers, you know, who they are.
0: If anyone from CML is listening, I'm gonna pitch this right now. Let's put Sam against Atlantis for the anniversary show next year. Moscow Caballera. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I, I
1: it would I'd like to think it'd be pretty hot. Um, we got to get through this next care match first, you know. I don't know what's going to happen there, but my big thing is, is, is I'm just praying for a sellout, you know. Because I was happy with ten thousand for the first time. I would be just, you know, over the moon if we could, you know, pack sixteen thousand into place, and that would probably make everything, you know, all worthwhile for me here. So, yeah.
0: So let's go back to August. You worked your first tour of all Japan. How did you even get connected with the company in the first place?
1: Well, it's funny enough, again, I guess I probably shouldn't leave the man out, but aside from Blue Panther, for this past year, my other number one feud in Mexico has been Ultimo Dragon. So uh, it's, it's been almost surreal because he was such a huge favorite of mine, you know, going back to Hayabusa and, and Liger and everything. Um, so working with him has just been absolutely unreal. And we got to the point where his big Dragon Mania show was in May of this year. And I was the main event on the Rudo side. I was pretty much, you know, the big heel. It was me, Joe Dorian, and Ultimo Dragon against, or me, me, Joe Dorian, and Ultimo Guerrero against Caristico, Ultimo Dragon, and Junakiyama. So because of that, you know, and the circumstance and the situation we were in, um, I was able to speak to the right people about uh, maybe setting up my first Japanese tour.
0: Explain the feeling of being a passionate fan of All Japan for so many years and then finally step in the ring for the company at the legendary Korokan Hall of all places. Um, everything
1: about it was just, you know, surreal from the get-go. Just, you know, the, the fact that we were on the, the flight, um, I was traveling with Caristico. Um The thing is, I've had opportunities to work there in the past as far as Zero uh, One goes. I've been invited. But now it's so common for people to pay for their own flights to go to Japan. And I've always felt like that's a bit of a short test. You know, that's something I never liked to do. So the fact that I was able to wait for a long enough time and eventually get an opportunity for all Japan, that kind of, you know, felt a little bit special for me. So that first day we got there, and uh, I was so amazed how the company officials treated me. You know, I, I was just taken care of like a, a superstar. It wasn't, you know, being a young boy wrestler in Japan for Zero One or going to a dojo or a tryout. I was treated probably the same as Stan Hansen or Johnny Ace would have been treated, you know, 25 years ago. Wow! And when I got to the building, there was already so many people that knew who I was. You know, these fans that had pictures of me printed out, and it really felt so special and surreal. Because, like I said, it's so common now for an indie guy to wrestle in Japan for you know X,Y,Z company. but you know for me, just knowing that it was all Japan pro-wrestling meant so much more.
0: Tell us about your time in Japan. What did you do outside of anything pro-wrestling related?
1: Um, I was lucky to be well, I can't say I was lucky because I'd rather you know work more, but I was there for 10 days, and we only had three shows on the tour. So I was able to see a lot of the city, a lot of the country, just spending time out. The food is just incredible.
0: I don't know if you've been there. Have you gone to Spain? Unfortunately, not. Um, My wife and I are planning on going uh, January 2021. We got our passports, and we're—it's definitely something we have on our calendar.
1: The food, the food is just—it makes everything worthwhile. Every culinary experience is—you know—just better than the last. Um, Just the people, the. What you need to remember is I live in Mexico City where everything's a little bit more uh, uh, slow and, and uh, less proficient. So to come from Mexico City to Tokyo, there are just two polar extremes. So, you know, seeing how hyper-efficient the train system was and how fast the restaurants and the stores are, you know, I really appreciated everything about it. I really just you know, can't wait till I have another opportunity to get back there.
0: Did you have a chance to visit um Kutakon while you were there?
1: Yeah, I did. I, I went there, I gave him a couple t shirts, I got a uh I got the no fear figures. Uh, I got a couple of got a couple of wrestling figures I was big on. It's weird though, because something has happened to me that it's it's kind of bittersweet, but the more you accomplish in wrestling, the more your inner fan dies. And, you know, years ago, if you would have put ten year old Sammy in Tetacon I would have bought every T-shirt and magazine there, but now, you know, it was really hard for me to find the things that would have meant enough for me to keep as a keepsake. And now, especially working for All Japan, I had no desire to buy anything of New Japan. You know, it was like, I, was, I couldn't go in there and buy a Noki a, a T-shirt or a, you know uh, anything of Moto because I feel like it would be disrespectful to, you know, Akiyama for hiring me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thoughts on the current All Japan Triple Crown Champion, Joe Doran?
1: I love Joe to death. Um, I just uh, I love spending time with him. I'm so happy he's worked out, and, and you know, thank God he's been able to recover his cancer and everything. Um, he's put the work in. He's a hell of a worker. Uh, I feel like there's a secret group of about you know 15 or 20 of us worldwide that you know probably would have fit in back in the day. And I think Joe's one of those guys, you know, like I said, the changed so much that uh, I think a lot of the top guys today would have not had a spot in, you know, all Japan in 1986. But I think, you know, Joe Doring's one that would have been there, you know, 1986, 76, or 66. You know, the guy's good at what he does, and, you know, I couldn't be more happy for him.
0: To your current knowledge, will you be going back to Japan anytime soon?
1: Um, I, I'm not exactly at liberty to say, but I would say it's probably more likely than not. Okay. Um, I'm in a weird position because I'm a works with New Japan, so I can't exactly go yelling out that way. But I, I think uh, my my long-term goals would be to spend, you know, significant more amount of time in Japan and just continuing to learn every style of wrestling I can, you know, from wherever it's going to teach me.
0: You learned Spanish during your time in Mexico. Um, is that's honestly like I heard that interview you did after the Blue Panther win, and I heard better Spanish than most of the people I work with that grew up speaking Spanish. Uh, just how I have to ask, how'd you do it?
1: I don't know. I always say I think I'm a little bit like Rain Man or something. Like, uh, I'm able to retain knowledge, you know, without exactly knowing how. Um, It just kind of came to me. I have a Mexican girlfriend, and uh, I live in Spanish with her every day. So I think it's just something practice makes perfect. But uh, it's funny because it's definitely helped my cause here as far as the company trusting me, you know, and kind of giving me a little bit more because they see I was able to learn, you know, Spanish and adapt to the culture. So, um, you know, that's worse for me. But it's funny because I've always been a, a promo guy. You know, that's been my strong point. You know, in England, I've, I, if you ask a lot of guys that have seen me work you know, here, they'll tell you, you know, San Madonna's is one of the best promos you've never heard. And the fact is now I'm getting the same education here in Mexico because they don't really know how to do promos. You know, they're they're so, um, it's just so sport-oriented that a lot of the promos are just basically like press conferences and just talking into a microphone you know, know how to turn it on and be entertaining. Well, because I have that experience, you know, for all the years in England, as well as being able to speak Spanish now, you know, my reputation here, people are saying, man, this Santa Donis is magic with the microphone. This guy, you know, I'm almost talking people into the building in Spanish, which in my mind is, you know, kind of ridiculous if you think about it. That's (laughs) something that if if you did ask me 20 years ago, I probably would have never thought that I'd learn Spanish the way that I have. And become known as a as a good microphone, a good uh, a good promo in Mexico.
0: <laughs> now, your current status: Are you under contract to any company, or are you freelance? I'm freelance right now, but
1: I'm exclusive to CML. Um, I don't really have intentions on screwing them over.
0: They've
1: been so good to me that I don't really want to ruin my relationship with them right now.
0: You recently wrestled for a new promotion that had a show in Ontario, California. Mind tell us a little bit about this promotion and that night in particular?
1: Now, it's a new company. It's called Heroes of Lucha Libre. It's actually a um, production company in Mexico, or in Los Angeles. And they were trying to figure out, you know, new original programming, a way to, you know, kind of use all their high-end production and present something different than concerts or circuits or whatnot. So they're getting into the wrestling game, and uh, it was awesome. These guys had probably the biggest wrestling production I've ever seen outside of a WWE production. So uh, it made a difference. It was too much fun. Had about 6,000 people there. And, uh, you know, from what I can tell, it seems like they probably have some really big things on the horizon.
0: They even brought in Mill Masters, didn't they? Oh, yes.
1: That was pretty cool. I was able to get him to get a uh, video message from my dad, which uh, he absolutely loved. So um, it was neat meeting him. Uh, again, working with La Parca and Blue Demon at the main event in front of 6,000 people in Los Angeles. It's just you know, something kind of cool, something kind of fun that I like to say that I've done, you know?
0: Yeah. How much would you say the Sam Adonis character is like you in real life? Um, I. It's weird because
1: I think these are the best kind of wrestlers Um Uh, I think they are a lot alike. You know, clearly I'm not nearly as insane as I am in the ring in real life. But, you know, 10 years ago, I was a guy trying to be a pro wrestler, you know, and learning the road and and trying to get involved. But after 10 years living on the road and and living, you know, this lifestyle, the person that, that you're trying to become is almost a little bit more real than the person you used to be. So, you know, you always talk about, like, a Ric Flair living the gimmick. You know, it's because he's been Ric Flair every day of his life. You know, now the more that I wrestle, the more that I'm working here, and the more I walk down the streets and people recognize Sam Adonis, it's kind of hard to disconnect, you know, when, when you know, Sam Palinstein's still here. But, you know, there's less time in Sam Polinsky than there is in Sam Adonis.
0: <laughs> now, what upcoming shows do you have in the States for those who are listening so they can have a chance to see you live?
1: Um, on uh, November the 26th, I'm actually wrestling Mystico in Florida, in uh, Bradenton, Florida, which is about 40 minutes south of Tampa. Uh, It's a big Mexican population. Um, It's Consejo Americano de Lucha Libre.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. It's
1: for the first ever Lucha Libre Championship of Florida. So it should be a pretty good show. Uh, Hechicero and Soberano will be there as well. So this should be a pretty cool, uh, you know, CMLL american Indie hybrid show, but that's pretty much the only one I can think of right now. Um, I'm always coming and going, though. That's just really cool right now. You know, I'd like to think I have a pretty decent amount of value in and stock, and, and people are talking about me, so, you know, I could hang up the phone right now and check my email and have something in Nebraska for two weeks from now, you
0: know? <laughs> if someone is looking to book you for a show, what's the best way to contact you?
1: Um, real Sam Adonis on Twitter would be the best way to get a hold of me, or they could just find me on uh, Facebook. Um, just you know, it's so funny now because all of us wrestlers are so easily accessible. You know, if, if there's a wheel, there's a way. You know, track down Sam Adonis. All I ask is people just keep supporting wrestling. You know, uh, I I just wish we could get it back to the days that were. You know, I do like my old school style wrestling. And I'm, I'm a big uh, – I'm very confident that any of your listeners that do like classic pro wrestling that might not know who I am, you know, I'd like to think I could be their breath of fresh air. I could be that guy that reminds them of 1984 Memphis or, you know, 1982 world class because that's what I'm going for and that's what, you know, that's what's given me my success here in Mexico. It's almost so old that it's new again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember um – um well, someone Nishimura was wrestling in the late 90s, early 2000s, and he was doing like Dory Funk Jr. type 70s stuff, and it was getting so over because the fans hadn't seen it, when in actuality it was just done 30 years ago, but to them it was new. So I, But that's I,
1: how it is. That, that's how it is here, especially. I'm a Memphis heel wrestling in CMLL, and that's why I've had my success, you know? Uh, and I truly believe that, you know, wrestling has become so far gone from what it is that the next generation can see a guy like Sam Anonis and say, man, I love this guy's new style. He's great, you know. And I would love to be somebody that can help start, you know, steering the ship in the right direction once again. Because, you know, in my eyes, and I think in a lot of the wrestling fans' eyes, you know, people are a bit tired of seeing the same old, you know, kick pad, super kick, high spot pro wrestling. <laughs>
0: Anything you want to say to the people out there following your career and supporting you?
1: Anybody that's been there with me thus far, you know, I I like to think I've, I stay in pretty good communication with everybody. Thank you so much for all the support. Uh, Just keep checking us out here at CMLL. Um, You know, hopefully I can get to come you guys down here. Hopefully you can come hang out sometime and enjoy Arena Mexico for what it is. So, uh, yeah, just just keep supporting and, Hopefully somewhere down the line I get to see everybody in a bigger stage, you know, hopefully in the United States sometime soon.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Sam. I can't thank you enough for this interview. It's like it's like almost chatting with an old friend more than just, you know, asking you a bunch of questions. So I, I really must say I really enjoyed this one.
1: Well, I appreciate it, man. And hopefully in a couple of months, if I do anything else cool, we can do it again.
0: And if um, Master talk was listening, Dude, get this guy at Expo Lucha. <laughs> definitely someone I was hoping to get him there. <laughs> awesome, man. I appreciate it, Roy. I'll speak to you sometime soon. Okay, buddy? Thank you so much, Sam. You enjoy the rest of your evening. All right, man. You too. Later. All right, bye. Later. There you go, wrestling fans. There's my interview that I had with Sam Adonis. And honestly, uh, as much as I knew about the man, this definitely was an eye-opener, and I learned a lot more about him. And personally, I hope that he has future tours of Japan, and he keeps doing his thing in Mexico. Just an amazing story. So if you're out there and wanting to get in the business and you've been studying tapes for a long time, know the tapes do come in handy. Know watching the videos and studying and all that do come in handy because Sam Adonis is living proof of that. So next we're going to have on the show the segment that I was talking about earlier. Uh, Let's get to it right now, and then afterwards we're actually going to have Takiyama's theme song played as well right afterwards with our theme song of the week that we kind of started I think a couple weeks ago unofficially. And then it was just brought up to me last week, because I think you did Giant Baba's music, and I had a couple people like who listen and are learning Japanese wrestling and the, the stories and the wrestlers. They were like, hey, what was that, that music you played after the Joe Malenko interview? I'm like, oh, that's Giant Baba's theme. They were like, you know, you didn't even say whose theme that was. So it's kind of an unofficial official thing now, but we're going to have a pro wrestlers uh, theme of the week on the show. So, without further ado, let's get to the next segment of the show, which has to do with the American, North American fundraiser for Yoshihiro Takayama. And without further ado, here is my old friend and the man who put the fundraiser together, Eric Cholminski. Hey, wrestling fans, Roy Lusher here, and I wanted to jump in real quickly and bring this up to everybody. I have on the line right now my old friend, Eric Cholminski who I have known for, God, 25, 26-something years now, and, uh, you know. You know
2: me, Roy, I My thing
0: was the late 80s, I think, Roy. Jesus, I know. You know, and it's funny, no matter how long we've known each other, we probably never get each other's last names right. <laughs> well, you, no, you did. You got, you, you got it right there. You got it right there. <laughs> and, you know, in the future, and I want the guests to know this, We are planning on having, you know, uh, you and I could talk for hours. We already know that. And, you know, if we were just to talk about Japan and stuff like that, you know, it would take up a whole show, and you are going to be a future guest on the show. But what was started today in all of the groups, classic Japanese pro wrestling, international wrestling fan base, and I even posted on my Japanese Facebook page and a few other pages was similar to last year. Joe Doring, we started a uh, PayPal thing where we donated, and um, I believe Scott Demore got involved too. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that first of all? Yeah, I
2: I had met Joe Doring um, a couple years ago in Japan, uh, and and became pretty friendly with him. I was I was at the show live when he lost the Triple Crown title to, to Go Shizaki It was one of the best matches I'd seen live that year was one of the best matches i've seen live ever um and we had become pretty good friends and uh you know we talked back and forth a couple times on the private messages and and there was a stretch where he he spent months not answering me you you get that weird complex where it's like what did i do you know (laughs) (laughs)
0: absolutely
2: it's like yeah and you know then you then you feel like you get that foot and mouth you know you know he finally contacted me back and I was kind of playfully busting them for him, like, you know, what did I do, Joe? Did I give you like a bad rating for, you know, one of your matches <laughs> or you know, something like that? <laughs> you know, and he, he said, "No, no, I, you know, I've been out of action. You know, I'm suffering from, I, I got brain cancer and I have a, a tumor that needs to get taken out." I said, oh, "Geez, you know, so we have a, um, we have a Japanese wrestling." Facebook group. It's, it's very, very popular due to the fact that, that you know we're, we're also the creators of the Real Hero Archive that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided that. Uh, uh, so actually, we didn't really do this one on our. own. We didn't do this one on our own. Um, someone had forwarded me a uh, GoFundMe page that a fan had started for Joe, um, for his you know medical bills and therapy and stuff. So I, I had. Um, I had posted it in the group, but decided that if people would just PayPal me the money, um, we could make one huge donation for the group rather than uh, GoFundMe sort of taking a cut out of everybody's donation on their own.
0: Three or four percent, something like that, but still, they're taking a cut.
2: Yeah, and it just seemed like we could get him more money, you know, by just, putting it in a, in a PayPal account and doing all, it all at once. And then we wound up getting about, I think, a $1,096 or something like that nice. um, over like a six-week period. I think we had like a six-week limit or a five-week limit that we set. And we, we had gotten lucky because Scott D'Amore on Twitter um, announced that for a 48-hour period, every donation that someone made, he was going to match. So, you know, we decided to, to put it there and, you know, kind of kill the <laughs> more, but he was very, very happy to do it. So we wound up getting something like $2,300 to Doring for his, you know, his medical bills, which is was pretty nice. So right now, what we're doing is a lot of people know um, Yoshihiro Takayama, who's been around forever, um, was recently severely injured in a match uh, doing a basic move. Um I haven't seen the clips. It's, it's kind of stuff that I don't like to watch. You know, I don't really yeah. like watching those grizzly injuries. I've still never seen the Hayabusa Hayabusa Hayabusa. injury. You know, I, I just don't watch stuff like that once I hear about it. But he's in a bad way. And today in, in, in my in the classic Japanese pro wrestling group, um, we've also shared it in your group, the International Wrestling Fan base. Um, we've shared it in Fumiaki Mizutani's Pro Wrestling Museum group.
0: Um, Meltzer shared it.
2: <laughs> Meltzer shared it on Twitter, yeah. Um, I believe the, the tomorrow night when the new edition of the New Japan Purocast releases that Colin Miller and Damon McDonald meant, are talking about it right at the beginning of the show. And I believe the, the all the crew over at Voices of Wrestling are also getting behind it.
0: What's the guy's name there? Rich Crete? Or you know, forgive yeah, me. If I'm... I'm
2: probably going to butcher his last name. I think it's Rich Crete. I, I hope yeah. I got that right. Um But there, he he's kind of in in contact with Damon quite a bit because the Purecast is on the voices of wrestling network. Oh wow! Podcasts. Um. So we started the drive today, and um, we're using PayPal because. Um, well, instead of like a GoFundMe, you know, if everybody sends money to the PayPal, and the PayPal address, um, the email that you're sending to is beerman37 at aol dot com. Um, beerman37 at aol dot com. Um, simply because, uh, you know, a GoFundMe, like you said, they they take a cut of everything, and we just figured if we send everything to this um, PayPal. All 100% of the funds we're going to give directly to Takayama. Um, nice. We're not keeping anything. You know, I'm not taking. You know. You know, a fee for my time. You know, we're giving every penny to him. Um, the only, the only money that we would lose is P- PayPal has like two options to send. One, you know, one they sort of take a cut, so you have to really make sure that you're clicking the right one. Um, but what but I'm going to do at the end anyway is anybody that mistakenly clicks that. Um, so like, what'll happen is if you donate, say, like twenty dollars and you click the wrong one, I may get like eighteen seventy eight. You know, they take like a dollar twenty two or whatever. Yeah. Um, but what I'm going to do is at the end, I'm just going to go through everything, and anybody that accidentally clicked that that wrong um, option, we're just going to make up the difference. Oh, nice oh, man, the real hero. So and, make sure that everything gets in there.
0: And to for listeners out there who are wondering, um, I, I use PayPal quite a bit because you know I'm an action figure a holic is the way to put it. Uh there's two options on PayPal. One is called Friends and Family, and the other one is called Goods and Services. If you use the Friends and Family one, you do not get charged for it. It's if, if you use the Goods and Services one, that they will take the dollar 89 out of the 20 dollar option, or whatever that is, so please use the friends and families option here.
2: Well, well, there you go, everyone. Use the friends and family. Yeah. We're close in the group so people know. Uh, Would you get a minute?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I
2: I didn't know offhand which one it was.
0: So. Yeah, I, I use PayPal all the time. It's the friends and family option on there.
2: So today was the first day, and yeah, we got like three hundred bucks the first day. It's pretty nice. Um, we were just hoping to get maybe like a thousand bucks, um, maybe more. But so far we've got three hundred in one day, which is which was you know pretty good haul for the first day. And what we're going to do is a bunch of us, myself, Damon. Um, Brian Mackey, you know we're we're going to be into we're going to be in Japan from December thirtieth until January the eighth, so we're going to have the drive up until around then, um, and we're going to try to deliver it um, directly to uh, Minoru Suzuki's very very good friend of his. Minoru Suzuki has a shop in Harajuku there, and he's there at the shop a lot, so we're hoping to catch him at the store, and we can actually just give it right to him. Minoru for anybody that's following him on Twitter and stuff, seems to be taking, like, charge in some places of this thing. You know, people have been going up to the gimmick tables there and they've been donating uh, to Takia Mania, which is what they're calling it over there. Yes. Uh, you know, all the shows have, like, a gimmick table to give him money. So we're we're going to bring over, uh, like, what we hope is, you know, a fairly large donation from, you know, all, the, all his um, online fans, you know, that have followed his career. Um, he's entertained people for a lot of years, and this this is something that, you know, fans can give back to a guy that gave a lot of entertainment to people and now he needs a lot of help. Um,
0: you know, even in 2002, you know, Takayama was still, I don't want to say new to business, been around almost a, a seven, eight, nine years, maybe a decade or something like that, but he had that match with Don Fry that even a 100 years from now will probably look, be looked at as the greatest Minute and a half of a legitimate fight in MMA history. That's yeah, it's like they just threw like nine thousand punches in like ninety
2: seconds. It was a great thing, and to do.
0: all of them connected.
2: Yeah, it was just, I you know he took a beating you know in his career you know sometimes scarily so in some of his matches you know I, I used to watch sometimes and think like ah oh, god what is this guy doing <laughs> you know it's, you know he seems to just be taking way too much punishment in these matches. That's very unfortunate. Now he got hurt on like the basic simplest of moves. You know, you see a sunset flip in a million matches. You know what I mean? It's just you know, and he wound up paralyzing himself from a you know very very simple move, which is usually how it goes. You know, these guys get the worst injuries from the simplest of things sometimes.
1: And as I'm
0: talking to you right now, I just got a message from Kikitaro that he will ahead of time mention our plan to Suzuki himself, so he will be aware of what we're attempting to do here
2: yeah i we we have a couple and that's great you know i i hope one day to meet kikitaro you know to, to say <laughs> thank you if he does that um but we have a couple people that that we know over there that we're hoping that can coordinate something that we can actually get this into the right hands um rather than just you know, it seems like very impersonal to like drop it in a box at a table, yeah
0: you know ab- absolutely and you know i understand that you know wanting you know, the video, and, you know, there might be a couple skeptics out there who are listening to this that don't know the situation, don't know you, and, hey, I just want to make sure it gets in the right place. You know, we're, we're definitely – are you you guys are planning on, you know, getting the, the film of Suzuki getting it, or what's that plan?
2: Yeah, we may do something like that. Um, we would ask him ahead of time, though. You know, I don't yeah. want to just, like, spring cameras in his face. You know, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, you know, or just take a photo of them holding it up. You know, just something to show that, that we had given it to them. Um, I know it's it's hard. You know, it's, you're asking people to donate money. You know, it's, it's a lot of trust you're putting in people. It's it's all online. You know, a lot of us haven't met each other. You know, you're online friends, but it's like, you know, how, how well do you really know somebody? But yeah, you just have to put your trust in somebody that, you know, we're going to do the right thing. You know, we're not taking a penny out of this money. You know, we just want to do something nice for the guy that, you know, he, him and his family are in a bad way. He probably needs every little penny. And, you know, we were just asking, you know, like these groups, you know, these Facebook groups have thousands of members, you know, if, if you could just get everybody to give a dollar, which, you know, you can't, you can't even get that, but um, you just, you just, all you can do is ask people to do what they can, you know, we give them a bunch of money, you know, $5, there's probably people on the, uh, in these Facebook groups that, you know, for example, smoke cigarettes. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like you know, skip a pack of cigarettes for a day. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just one day. It's all you gotta do. Yeah. And
0: what's the email address one more time?
2: The email address is beerman thirty seven at a o l dot com. B E E R beer like is drinking beer. Um uh-huh. man, Beerman thirty seven at AOL dot com.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Um we'll get the word out with this and uh hopefully this will lead to, you know, a few more donations, one more donation, hopefully something. We just want to get the word out because I fully believe Takiyama has put his body and almost his life on the line for our enjoyment, and this is the least we can do for him in return. Great. Thanks a lot, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Thanks thanks a lot, Eric. Classics with Roy Lucer. Boom. Hey, wrestling fans. Roy Lucer here one more time. Hope you enjoyed the segment with Eric Slaminsky and Sam Adonis earlier. And I also want to thank uh current IWGP tag champion Harry Smith for his support of the show. And definitely 100%. I'm I'm glad to have so much support from fans, friends, and the workers alike. That really means a lot. Without further ado, I did want to mention a couple sponsors for our show. Uh Collar and Elbow, of course, the clothing line. If you go onto their website, which is on collarandelbow.com and you use the promo code Japanese wrestling classics, you will get 10% off of your order. The Clothing is the feel of the clothing is amazing, honestly. It's a really, really nice cotton. And, you know, I was a guy, it's like, you know, you really don't care what you wear and stuff like that. But try one of the shirts. Not only you're supporting wrestling, but you're wearing something that's pretty cool. they got a lot of different designs and stuff. So I definitely highly recommend checking out Collar and Elbow. And on top of that, uh, we have a new sponsor this week, um, WrestleTopia. Out of the Tennessee area, WrestleTopia has been a very, very important part of my tape uh, collecting, DVD collecting, over the past three, four years now. Uh, Justin Descend runs it, and he's got an amazing thing going. Basically, if you have trouble finding a DVD, or you're looking for something, or you're looking for complete sets, WrestleTopia is the place to go. They're on Facebook at WrestleTopia, W R E S T L E P O T O P I A. So WrestleTopia, the word wrestle, T O P I A. Um, he also can get magazines, action figures, uh, posters, and other memorabilia from hard to get wrestling things. Like I said, I, I really couldn't have done a lot of my uploads and my hard-to-find stuff without Justin Descent and WrestleTopia. So check them out on Facebook. Give them a like. Uh, If there's anything specific you're looking for that you haven't seen uploaded anywhere on my YouTube, Real Hero Archive, you know, he's definitely the man to ask for sure. Uh, Other than that, uh, we got the Cow Palace show November 10th with – Ray Mysterio Jr. and Juventud Guerrera against Pentecero Miedo and Ray Phoenix. Jack Swagger against Jeff Cobb. Jeff Cobb, a avid supporter of the show. And I wanted to say, check out his, uh, his pro wrestling seasoning. They just brought him out there for the grand opening. So they're taking care of him. Let's take care of the company in return. Other than that, oh, Expo Lucha this week. So Expo Lucha is the event happening at the Orleans Hotel, August 31st, September 1st, out in Vegas. They announced five new people this past week, and one of the names is Mil Mascaris. Now remember, Mascaris obviously is going to be a high-demand luchador, and if you want to get a pick and an autograph with Mil Mascaris, the only way to do it is to get a VIP ticket. From Expo Lucha. So go on to their website, expolucha.com, look up the packages, decide whatever one suits your needs, the platinum or the gold package, uh, and there will also be regular tickets that will start being available, I believe, at the end of November, like two days' uh, tickets. I, I don't know the price, so I, I don't want to say it and uh, you know have people thinking it's one thing when it's not. But the Platinum VIP is 350 the Gold one is 250 All of the perks that you get with being uh, VIP to this, over 100 wrestlers. Uh, going backstage, if you got the Platinum package, meeting the wrestlers, picking auto with all of them at no extra charge, uh, it, it, the price of admission alone, all those autographs and picks that you're going to be getting. They've only announced, what, 26 needs for this thing. They still have 75 to go. So I, I can't recommend enough Expo Lucha. I will be there. Uh, my wife will be there. and bringing her along, and I hope to see many used possibles there. Anyways, enjoy the show. I hope you did. And we'll see you next time for another exciting episode of Japanese Wrestling Classics with Roy Lucha. <sighs>